On, on the Lord's Day, we talked about the, the certainty of this departure that Paul and the Ephesian believers were experiencing. So we have come 1,900 years from that particular point of time. You understand that. Uh, and the still future to us. So Paul was writing to Timothy. He was the pastor at Ephesus. And he was saying, The Spirit expresseth, uh, speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. So we took time on the Lord's Day morning to deal with the coming of the departure. But tonight I want to move on and think about the cause of this departure. Why did it come about? What happened? The apostasy of some from the profession of their faith. Now, an apostate is not someone who's ever been saved. A believer can backslide and fall away from the Lord, can be restored. Uh, that has been the experience of many of us, even here in the house of God. But an apostate may have a profession of faith. But an apostate has never had a real experience of faith in Jesus Christ. I, I, I quoted Judas on the Lord's day. And I suppose when the disciples had times of prayer, he would have prayed. And when they had their open-air meetings and preached, and I'm sure he preached. And maybe he actually performed miracles. If the rest of them performed miracles, it's very likely that he performed miracles. But the sad reality is, tonight he's in hell. He's lost. A very sobering thought, isn't it? But he was never a believer. He apostatized from the faith. He couldn't live with himself then. He committed suicide. And he went out into a Christless eternity. And he's still there. And he will be there for eternity. So uh, the apostasy of some from the profession of faith was due to paying attention or to give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Verse 1. The false teachers were energized by Satan. Now, I mentioned on the Lord's Day near the end of the message, I think, that that word seducing in the Greek is the word planos, from which we get our word planet. And uh, it uh, refers to wandering. Apostates are described in Jude as wandering stars, as empty clouds but no water. That's a description. And the book of Jude deals with the whole issue of apostasy. Read it sometime for yourself. Uh, it's a horrendous book, you know. It's not an easy book to preach through. I did it years ago in Orlando. It's not an easy book to get through. But we have the thought here of wandering. Thus, it came to mean seducing or being deceitful. So these false teachers were energized by Satan. And you will notice that Paul refers to the Holy Spirit and the evil spirits in the same verse, verse 1. And there's a reason for that. For behind the false teachers, he sees the activity of demonic forces. Just as there is the mystery of godliness concerning Christ in chapter 3, verse 16. And we have quite a number of very famous 3 and 16 verses in the Bible. John 3 and 16, for example. And here's another one. And you can find one or two others as well. It would prove to be a good study to think about the chapters 3 and verse 16. 
And then there is the mystery of iniquity that surrounds Satan. And uh, that is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7. So you have the mystery of godliness, and then you have the mystery of iniquity. You have Christ, and then you have Satan. And behind the false teachers in the church at Ephesus were these uh, men who were moved by Satan and possessed by demons. And Paul knew that he was in a spiritual conflict and that he was wrestling not against uh, uh, powers of darkness, he was wrestling against the powers of darkness. It weren't uh, flesh and blood. He realized that he had a fight in his hands and really, child of God, this is where we're at tonight. We have a fight in our hands because we wrestle against these spiritual wickedness and spiritual darkness in high places. But though it came from the demons, it came through men. That's the point. It came through these false teachers. So behind the false teachers was the work of the devil, these false spirits. Satan is a great imitator. He transforms himself into the angel of light. You stand in the pulpit on a Sunday morning so pious, having his hands clasped like this, and he reads the scriptures in a dignified fashion, and he lets the people go on to hell because he never tells them the gospel. And people love it that way. That's happening in Ulster. It's happening right across the UK, further afield, the world over. That's the way it is. Apostasy, that's what apostasy is. A departure from the faith. And you have these people in their pulpits. And Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And he has his human agents, of course. Sometimes you see them walking around the streets there in groups. They come knocking on your door. I've got good news for you. No, it's not. It's not good news. No good news at all. Beware. And then Satan has his own doctrines as well. And he seeks to deceive God's people and to lead them astray. Now, it comes to a shock to some of God's people how Satan uses professed Christians in the church to accomplish his work. Now, think about it. Judas is one of the twelve. He renounced his faith. Turned aside. He apostatized. That's what the word means. He apostatized. But you think of forward, bold, courageous Peter. Satan used Peter to try to lead Jesus on the wrong path. Read Matthew 16 sometime for yourself. He used Ananias and Sapphira to try to deceive the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5. And so we can see the attack as from the inside. Yes, the devil comes and he attacks from the outside, but he also can attack from the inside. Now, the Apostle Paul had warned the elders at Ephesus that false teachers would arise from within the church. I'm sure you are familiar with Acts chapter 20 and the time Paul had a time with the elders, uh, the great times of weeping and and so on as he was leaving and he warned them about this he says now false teachers will enter into the church at Ephesus beware of this this has happened this is happening now when you think of the church at Ephesus in the book of Acts the historical book 
chapters 18 through 20 tells about the commencement of the church at Ephesus. The apostle was there for three years. We have been without a permanent resident pastor for three years. Paul had three years ministry and God broke in and God established the church. God did great things. He established this church. And the church at Ephesus eventually had its own pastor. God sent Timothy to be the pastor of that congregation, young pastor. Don't despise youth either, by the way. Experience is good. Yes, but at the same time, Paul and Timothy worked hand in hand together. You think about the good advice Timothy received from Paul. It must have been invaluable, the experience that he received in the service of God. So you have the commencement of the work. And then when you come to the book of uh, Ephesians, that's one of the classical books in the New Testament, a classic epistle, six chapters, marvelous teaching. And when you read that book, some commentators divide it into two different parts, but I would go and uh, as far as saying it can be divided into three different parts. Keep this in mind. Chapters one through three, you have, you have the wealth, our wealth in Christ. It talks there about the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. You have election, you have adoption, you have forgiveness, and so on. The sealing of the Spirit, you have it all there. Spiritual blessings, the first three chapters. Amazing book, study it for yourself. Begin a study in Ephesians, read it through. And then from chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 6, you have the walk, our walk in Christ. Uh, we are to walk worthy of our calling. And chapter 4 through to chapter 6, halfway through it deals with our walk. We've got to walk right, you know. And because of our wealth in Christ, that is the motivation. What we have in him ought to be reflected in the way we walk before men, showing them something of what we believe. We've got the doctrine, yes, that's important, but there's the duty to walk before men. And then when you're doing that, you come to the latter part of Ephesians chapter 6, to the end of the chapter, and I would call this, or say this was, this is our warfare in Christ. And uh, when you have a warfare, you need uh, weapons. You need an armory. And uh, that's what chapter 6 and the latter part of the chapter deals with what we have, the Christian armor. I had a good time preaching that in Orlando and, and Ballygowan. I love to preach on that. Tremendous subject on the armor that we have as God's people. So you have the commencement and God did a great work and God established the work. And then you have the communication with the church. Six wonderful chapters divided into three different sections. It's all there. But then by the time we come to Revelation chapter 2, in chapters 2 and 3, John is writing to seven local congregations. And each of these congregations had a pastor because it is the will of God for each congregation to have an angel. So it's the will of God for us to have an angel here, a messenger, if you like, a pastor, full-time pastor. You get tired of Mary with an intermoderator. He's only a part-time officer in the church. You want to have your own man. I understand that. You want rid of me. Don't be too quick to say amen uh, to that. That's just, by the way, isn't that right, but I'm a substitute. I'm filling in. But you want to have your own man. And each of these churches had its own pastor. That's God's will. 
Keep that in mind, folks, when we come to talk later on about the need here in this congregation. It may not be the man you want, but if there's a majority uh, of consensus here in the congregation, that would be a good indicator about the way we ought to move. But that's, by the way, we'll just have to wait and see. Keep that in mind. Be open to the leading of the Lord and let the Lord have his own way. And when that happens, as I said before, it's important to get the right man. And if we get the right man, then you'll be blessed. And you will rejoice that it took three years, maybe three and a half years. I was talking to a colleague uh, just there the other day, and I was saying about, it's been a long three years. He said, when I was in charge of a certain church, it was four years. So I'm not the prophet or a son of a prophet. I mentioned at the very start when I came here, it could be three years. I'm not even going to talk about mentioning a fourth year. I'm not going to say that at all. And during that four years, I happened to be one of the men who refused the call to go to that congregation. I was looking the other day through my files. I've got a call with 166 names on it. And I said, no. And another man who received the call after that, he refused that call as well. So there was a congregation, two men were called. Two men refused. You can imagine how they must have felt. But then God raised up another man and took the congregation to another level. God is in control of all things. He's working out all things for his own glory. I better get into this message or we'll never be finished here tonight at all. Time's moving on so quickly. So we're talking here about the coldness that had crept into this church. And Paul had warned years before these false teachers are coming. Beware, beware, beware. And sure enough, when we come to Revelation 2, the coldness of the Ephesian church, the goal of these false teachers is to seduce people to get them to depart from the faith. Now apostasy, let me emphasize this again, is the willful turning away from the truth of the Christian faith. And these false teachers, it doesn't matter in what age they live, these False teachers do not try to build up the church. What is their goal? To break up the church. Don't want to build it up. Don't want to break it up. They want to get disciples to follow them, to join their group, to promote their programs. And the true church seeks to win converts for Christ. That's what it's all about, men and women. If this church is right with God, with a man in place, anointed of God to preach Christ, we can expect to see people saved under his ministry. That's got to be the goal, the aim of the congregation. Differences sometimes need to be put uh, away that we might not grieve the Spirit of God in allowing the Spirit to come and to flow through us to the glory of God that this community, what a community it is, needs to be reached with the gospel. Needs to have the gospel preached to it. And that's the reason why as the saying is, our hands need to be clean and our hearts need to be pure and we need to be in a place that we're not breaking up anything but we're seeking to build up the work of God and the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true church seeks to win converts to Christ but what does the cults do? They go around the doors wanting to take you away from this church and that church and another church and so on. They've got a wee bit of gospel in there. Well, something from the Bible anyway. I'm not saying it's gospel, but they're going to quote the Bible to make it authentic, appear to be authentic. Uh, beware when they come. Don't invite them in. 
Don't say good to see you. Don't wish them God's blessing when they go. No. That's what the Bible teaches us. And we need to make sure that we know how to deal with these people. So they go around and they have this cult. And then the, the, the cult leader becomes God, if you like. You think of all these mass suicides out in the States and other places. Hundreds of them. Brainwashed into believing this man's a messiah of some kind. And then they're prepared even to end their lives to gratify this man's desires, whatever. Ye shall know them by their fruits. That's what Jesus says. However, let me just say something else. All apostates are not in cults. Some are in the churches, and listen to it. Some are in the pulpits in County Londonderry, in County Antrim, in County Armagh, and so on. Be sure of this. By their fruits ye shall know them, and they're teaching false doctrine, and leading people astray. And Satan works by means of the hypocrisy of liars. That's a literal translation of what we have here in verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy. So they're liars. They're not telling the truth. They're not being honorable. They're not preaching the word. They're deceiving multitudes. And they're in our midst. They're in our midst. And we need to identify them. Now, it says here, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. So maybe some of you have studied this up and you know what I'm going to say. Maybe some of you haven't a clue what this is all about. Well, I didn't have a clue about it until I studied it through for myself. And I want to share with you then what the meaning is here. That word sear means cauterized. I think that's the way to pronounce it. That's C-A-U-T-E-R-A-S-R-Z-E-D. And it is to burn the skin or the flesh of a wound with a heated instrument to stop bleeding or to prevent infections. You've watched Rawhide or the Lone Ranger and Tondo. And, ah, the Lone Ranger's wounded. You can see the blood coming out here. And, and so somebody has a, a hot knife there and cuts the bullet out and then they may take a branding iron or something. Ah, what's that to do? It's to bind up the wound to prevent infection. You've watched movies like that, haven't you? You know what I'm talking about here. Cauterized. To stop the bleeding to prevent infection. And when the skin, nerve, or superficial tumor is cauterized, it's destroyed by burning and rendered insensitive. That, that's the point. Keep that in mind. And the metaphor is taken from the practice of banding, uh, branding slaves with a mark identifying them as belonging to a certain owner. Just the way cattle are branded nowadays. I think that still goes on in certain places. And so this is my, this is my animal here. I want to make sure nobody takes it. So you get the branding there. You put DE. There it is. That, that belongs to me. These people have the brand or the sign of Satan on them. They're branded by his mark. They're cauterized, you see. They're branded as the agents of the devil, as false uh, prophets. And since false teachers are engaged in the devil's work, their conscience is branded with a sign which indicates his ownership. They're the slaves. They're his slaves. They're his property. And just as the person's flesh can be branded so that it becomes hard and without feeling, so a person, listen to it, so a person's conscience can be deadened. And that's what's happened to these people. 
They've rejected the truth. They've hardened their hearts. It doesn't matter how much you pray for them or preach to them. They've turned aside from the faith. That they're as good as in hell. They've hardened their hearts. And that's the way it is. When we affirm with our lips something that we deny with our lives, we deaden our conscience a little bit more each time. It's good to have a tender conscience in the sight of God. It's good to have a tender spirit as the people of God. Now Jesus made it clear that it is not religious talk or even performing miracles that gets people into heaven. It's doing the will of God with an everyday life walking with him. So an apostate is not only wrong doctrinally, he's wrong morally. His personal life became wrong before his doctrines changed. In fact, it is most likely that he changed his teaching so that he could continue his sinful living and pacify his conscience. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Believing and behaving always go together. And then Paul highlights something here, and I've got to come to an end real soon. In verses 3 and 5, this is what they were seeking to do. Look at what it says here at the beginning of verse 5. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving to them which believe and know the truth. So these two things stand out as symbols of the religion, uh, the religious lifestyle of these apostates, false teachers. More than 20 centuries have passed since then and there are still people who believe sadly, that they can earn God's favor by adherence to these kinds of rules and regulations and restrictions. Now, the Roman Catholic Church is presently in a great struggle to maintain its ancient requirement of a celibate priesthood forbidding to marry. But the conclusion of this teaching is that to regard what God created as something unclean, as sinful. Marriage is something unclean in the eyes of these false teachers. They fly in the face of God. To teach that abstaining from marriage and certain foods is a high road to closeness with God. You remain celibate, you deny yourself certain foods, and that will certainly bring you close to God. That of all nonsense is blasphemy, really. To require that individuals who want to be good Christians must abstain is dangerously false. You think about the priesthood. You think about the scandals that have surrounded the priesthood down through the centuries. Think about the immorality that goes on behind closed doors and in secret. These men have been denied what God has bestowed upon all men to enjoy. These things have been denied. Therefore, they... uh, Resolve to do, take things in their own hands to gratify the flesh. And that has brought heartbreak to many, thousands and thousands over the years. You think of some of the stories we hear coming out of monasteries and so on. It's unbelievable. Sad, sad, very sad. They taught that the unmarried life was more, uh, was better than the spiritual, uh, was more spiritual than being married which is contrary to scripture. 
It is not good that man should be alone, the Lord said in Genesis 2 verse 18. And Jesus put his approval on marriage in Matthew 19, though he pointed out that not everyone is supposed to marry. That's the Lord's will. That's his mind. And it's just not his will that everybody should marry. I know that Peter had a wife. I know that they had a mother-in-law. I know what God did in their house. And some people, it's God's will for them to marry, to have a wife in the ministry as a great helpmate, to share burdens and cares as Anne does with me. For all these years, trustworthy, reliable, dependable person who's there through thick and thin, good and bad, all the moving down to the years, moving to Tyrone, moving to County Down, moving to the United States of America, picking up and heading away from family and loved ones and friends for years, stepping out by faith. That, that means a lot. And so a wife can be a great support in the ministry. But these false teachers were in fact in the Ephesian church and they taught that certain foods were taboo. If you ate them, you were not spiritual. Now, I don't know what kind of menu you eat, but uh, I have a fairly balanced uh, menu. And I like to eat good things. And I like to be able to eat as much as I want of good things as well, like most of you. I'm just looking out now to see what shape you are. <laughs> we're all in the same boat, aren't we? That's the case. But these men were going around and to eat certain things that was taboo. You were not spiritual. The fact that God has said about his creation, it was good. Everything was good. But that did not interest these false teachers. And their authority to dictate diets gave them power over their adherents. But here, verse 3, I've got to finish. We're told in verse 3 at the end, is to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And that word know means fully know. And those who believe and know the truth fully are not impressed with do's and don'ts of the legalists. Jesus stated that all foods are clean. He taught that to Peter in Acts chapter 10. Remember the sheets coming down? Oh, there are certain things I'm not supposed to eat. And there was a time they had these restrictions in the Old Testament. And there's a reason for that. Because certain things were clean and certain were unclean. And that was to teach the people a spiritual lesson. The unclean things represent unclean people. And the clean animals represent clean people justified by faith. There's a difference between the clean and unclean. That, that, was, that was the whole idea. But then when Christ came, he abolished all of those things, you see. Uh, maybe in, in Eden, Adam and Eve were vegetarians. They were eaten from the ground and the trees and so on. But after the flood, God said, you can go out and have a good steak now. You can eat meat. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, uh, he was not a vegetarian. Because I know that Jesus was able to eat fish. I know that he was able to eat uh, lamb. He, he fed the crowds with fish and bread. And if he was a vegetarian, I'm sure he would not have been doing this. Uh, we, we could go on, but 
that there's no command forbidding us to eat meat. But we have the liberty to do that. And a person who wants to be a vegetarian, that's up to them. But it's not right to try to force that upon anybody else. That's your view, that's your opinion, you're entitled to it. You can do that. There's nobody saying anything about that. You're not commanded to eat meat. But we have liberty to eat meat. What would the children of Israel have done in the wilderness? All those years, the Lord sent manna from heaven. He sent the quails as well. Uh, They they had uh, sacrifices. Tabernacle. What did the priests eat? What did they eat? The sacrifices that were brought. That's how God provided for them. So we have a situation here. A person may not be able to eat certain foods, maybe for physical reasons, whatever. For, for allergies' sake and all that kind of thing. But no, no food is to be rejected for spiritual reasons. The food we eat is sanctified or set apart, devoted to God when we pray and give thanks for them. And when we have our meals at home, we take the time morning, afternoon, the evening time to bow for prayer. We give God thanks for the food. And in so doing, it's sanctified. And it becomes a, 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 like a spiritual feast unto the Lord because God has provided it for us and he has blessed us with these things. So I've gone on, I've, I've another point, but I don't start it now. And we'll be just leave it there. Said enough. I trust that it has opened up this passage in some way to you. And it will be a blessing. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll finish in about half an hour's time. I would like to have as many people praying as possible. And, and tonight, the reason we're, we're going to talk in a short time about the calling of a minister. So let's... Just keep our focus tonight on that. We can have ten short prayers here about the work, about the the wisdom that is needed and the purpose of our meeting later on. Just everybody get in, join in. Don't wait for anybody else. Just join in and pray and seek the face of the Lord. I'm going to ask uh, Mr. Medole, the Reverend Medole, if he would briefly lead us uh, and set the standard for us now as we come to pray. Let's get down up to the business tonight. Let's pray.